Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what is NATO and what's Ireland's involvement in it? In an emotional speech last weekend, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky hit out at NATO for refusing to impose a no-fly zone over his country as Russian forces continue their assault. This push for direct NATO intervention has become a rallying call for the public in Ukraine as they witness the destruction of their villages, towns and cities. NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has continued to take a cautious approach to the conflict in Ukraine, insisting that it cannot have direct involvement without risking wider and potentially catastrophic consequences. But it was, in part at least, down to a gradual move by Ukraine towards NATO and the West that this invasion was launched by Russia's Vladimir Putin. The Russian president has, for decades now, objected to NATO expansion, particularly when it involved the belt of countries around his own territory, and he had made it clear that Ukraine could not join this international alliance. Now, as the fighting continues in Ukraine, a debate is also raging about NATO's role in it all, and what the events of the last few weeks mean for the organization's future. Joining me is Dr. Andrew Cotty, Professor at the Department of Government and Politics at UCC. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. I want to start by going through some of the basics. Can you first explain for us what NATO's main goal is? Well, NATO is a defence alliance, so NATO's goal is primarily to defend its member states, and NATO has in place some political institutions and military infrastructure to help it implement that. And I guess more broadly, in a sense, NATO is there to protect the interests of its member states. So NATO is a defence alliance, and that's the core of what NATO is. And when was it first formed? Who would have been the first members? So NATO was formed a long time ago, way back in 1949, at the beginning of the Cold War. And this was in response to the imposition of communism across Eastern Europe by the Uh, Soviet Union, and in particular to the Berlin crisis of 1948-1949, when the Soviet Union tried to cut off West Berlin. And NATO's first members, there were 12 member states, so the United States and Canada, uh, and then West European countries, um, the United Kingdom, France, the Benelux countries, uh, and so on. And would it have been at the time envisaged as something that was going to be in place, you know, long term forever? Or or was it seen as a a kind of a stopgap for what was needed at the time? Um, I think that was a kind of open ended question. Obviously, when NATO was set up in 1949, we were only at the very beginning of the Cold War. uh, And it was unclear how long the Cold War would last. The other thing maybe to note is that at that point, the so-called German question, what would happen to Germany, uh, also wasn't resolved. So in the next few years, then the um, consolidation of two German states, West Germany and East Germany, emerged, the division of Germany. And then in 1955, West Germany joined NATO as well. So probably back in um, 1949, few people perhaps expected that NATO might still be around uh, 70 years later. But in a sense, NATO has now become, uh, if you like, a permanent institution of the West, one of the unifying institutions of the West bringing together European countries with the US and Canada. And in terms of the military operations over the years that NATO has been involved in, which ones would stand out? Well, I think the first thing to say is, in a sense, the military operation which NATO never fought, which was actually the Cold War. So for the first 40 years of NATO's existence, NATO's plans were to defend Western Europe. So that's what NATO was all about at that point. But of course, it never actually came to a hot war during the Cold War. So in a sense, that was a war that NATO fought, but it prepared for. 
And then when the Cold War ended, NATO moved into new territory politically, if we put it like that. So in 1995, NATO intervened in Bosnia. In 1999, NATO intervened uh, in Kosovo. Uh, and then later on in Afghanistan as well. So in that period, NATO shifted its focus to some extent towards peacekeeping uh, and what was referred to as humanitarian intervention. And you mentioned Kosovo there. What type of conflict was that? Well, Kosovo was an ethnic conflict, if you like. So Kosovo was a conflict where you had the breakup of Yugoslavia uh, and you had conflict between different uh, ethnic groups. And in particular, the Yugoslav or Serbian uh, government at that point was attacking the Albanians in Kosovo uh, and NATO went in firstly with airstrikes to try and halt those uh, Serbian attacks on the Kosovo Albanians and then NATO deployed a large-scale peacekeeping force on the ground in Kosovo uh, to maintain the peace and even to this day much smaller numbers but there's still a NATO force on the ground in Kosovo 20 plus years later. What kind of process is in place then for it to go through if it is considering an actual boots on the ground response? So, I mean, NATO has political and military institutions which are based at NATO's headquarters uh, in uh, Brussels. Uh, Those institutions operate on a permanent basis. And if NATO were considering an actual boots on the ground operation, then decisions would be taken by the member states via those political and military institutions in Brussels. So, for example, if we take the case of the Baltic states or Poland, if they were attacked, NATO has plans whereby it would try to defend those countries against a potential attack from Russia. And we hear a lot about Article 5. Can you explain exactly what that is and how it works in in a practical sense? So Article 5 refers to Article 5 of the 1949 Washington or North Atlantic Treaty. So that's the legal treaty on which NATO uh, is based. And essentially, Article 5 says that if one NATO member state is attacked, then all NATO member states will provide that member state with assistance. So that's a security guarantee, a commitment to come to one another's collective defence. That Article 5 has only actually been activated once after the 9-11 attacks on the United States. So then Article 5 was activated and in a political sense that was more a political declaration of solidarity uh, with the United States in the wake of 9-11. But of course now we're potentially looking at scenarios in Poland, Baltic states, Romania in the case of a Russian attack when Article 5 might have to be activated for real in the sense of leading to military action. But of course, exactly how NATO would respond in the in the case of a so-called Article 5 uh, crisis remains to be seen. So even if NATO makes the decision, you know, we're going to have some kind of direct intervention, there's no set structure for exactly how that would go. It, it's really just determined by what the situation is, right? Yeah, and what the member states can agree on. So ultimately, NATO works on the basis of its member states. So NATO today has 30 member states. So if you take this um, debate about a no-fly zone over Ukraine, um, the 30 NATO member states are sitting down every day discussing what can they do in relation to Ukraine. And at the moment, the member states, most of them are wary of a no-fly zone over Ukraine because they fear that could drag them into a war with uh, Russia. So in essence, really, when you talk about Article 5 and when you talk about what NATO might do in a crisis, you're talking about what will the member states be willing and able to agree to. And obviously, Ireland isn't a member of NATO. So what kind of involvement do we have in general terms? So Ireland is a member of something called Partnership for Peace. 
So Partnership for Peace is a framework that was set up after the Cold War to enable non-member states to cooperate with NATO. Uh, and in particular, initially, this was targeted at the Central and East European states. So at this point, countries like Poland and so on weren't members of NATO, but they wanted to be able to cooperate with NATO. But it was also opened up to neutral countries like uh, Ireland. What that means is that Ireland has an element of political dialogue with NATO. There's some military cooperation. And Ireland, in some circumstances, can contribute to NATO operations. So again, we mentioned uh, the intervention in Kosovo uh, a little while ago. NATO's peacekeeping operations on the ground in Bosnia uh, and in Kosovo, Ireland contributed troops to those uh, operations. But in the Ireland, Irish case, of course, that was still ultimately a decision of the Irish government and of the Dáil. Uh, and in the Irish case, Ireland also uh, has a requirement that there be a UN Security Council resolution authorising any operation which Ireland might take part in. And are there other examples that, that Ireland would have contributed troops to? Um, the only other one is the um, intervention in Afghanistan. And in that case, the Irish contribution was absolutely tiny. It was literally less than 10 uh, Irish military personnel who were in the headquarters in Kabul, the Afghan capital, in uh, Afghanistan as an element of political and military engagement with NATO's operation there. But other than those three operations, Bosnia, Kosovo uh, and Afghanistan, Ireland doesn't contribute to NATO operations. And if we go back to the collective defence point that we talked about earlier, well, that's something for NATO members. Ireland isn't in any way engaged in NATO's plans for collective defence of countries like Romania, Poland or the Baltic states. And that relationship that Ireland has with NATO and that other countries outside of NATO have with the organisation, is that representative of how NATO's remit has evolved over time, moving into those spaces of diplomacy and some you know, uh, humanitarian work, things like that? That's exactly right. I mean, if you think about NATO's first four decades, the Cold War period, NATO was a defence alliance, and that was really the very strong emphasis of what NATO was about. So NATO didn't really have... Uh, relationships with non-members. But with the end of the Cold War, all of that changed and there was a recognition that NATO needed to change too. So things like the Partnership for Peace were part of all this post-Cold War uh, change with NATO. Uh, and as you say, NATO took on a greater diplomatic uh, role, if we like, uh, and NATO also began cooperation with non-member countries. And I mean, today we can even see NATO is trying to look at the issue of climate change, considering how it should respond to the issue of climate change. Does NATO have a role in something as far away from its traditional role as that? The other thing, though, we can probably say is obviously with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to a significant degree, NATO is going to be coming back to its traditional role uh, as a defence alliance. Do we have any sense of what the public or political appetite is in, in Ireland for either a change in the relationship with NATO or even full membership? I think the general view is that the Irish public are very attached to the idea of uh, neutrality. There isn't very detailed or reliable public opinion evidence, but I think it seems fairly clear that most people in Ireland probably support neutrality uh, and therefore wouldn't support membership of NATO. And if you even look in the last week or two in the debate over uh, the Ukraine situation, we've seen a lot of debate about neutrality, but almost no one, if you look at the leading politicians, the political parties, almost no one is suggesting that Ireland should join NATO. So it's probably unlikely that we'll see a radical shift in uh, Irish public opinion. But one of the questions really is exactly what 
neutrality means and exactly what kind of constraints neutrality uh, imposes. So, for example, one of the questions is whether Ireland should consider delivering arms to Ukraine to support Ukraine uh, in its arms struggle against Russia. Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because that neutrality debate has been going on there for, for the last few weeks. I mean, can we actually consider ourselves neutral considering that we are intervening in a sense? Well, I think one of the things with neutrality is that it's not clear what neutrality means. So neutrality is actually a rather kind of open-ended and uh, flexible uh, concept. Ireland is neutral, I think, in the sense that it hasn't joined a military alliance. It hasn't joined NATO. It hasn't taken on a collective defence commitment. And that's, if you like, perhaps the core legal and basic point of uh, neutrality. But then you get into the wider debate, sometimes referred to as political neutrality. Is, you know, Should a country like Ireland be entirely neutral in a conflict between other countries, in this case between Russia and Ukraine, or should it in some sense take sides? And there's an obvious argument that Russia is overwhelmingly the aggressor here, that the Russian armed forces may very well be committing war crimes, uh, and arguably, arguably being neutral in that context is not the right position to take. Do you think is military non-aligned sort of a, a better term to describe what we are at the moment? That might be a better term, in particular in Finland and Sweden, which are also neutral countries. Their governments often use this language of military non-alignment, which means not being part of a military alliance, not being part of NATO, but being part of the European Union, not being neutral on questions like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And how difficult could it be for Ireland to become a full member of NATO? I mean, I know that there isn't necessarily a huge appetite for that at the moment, but if there was going forward, what would be involved? Well, I guess two things. Firstly, it's a national decision. So it would be for the Irish government and I guess ultimately the Dáil and probably the public via a referendum to decide whether Ireland wanted to join NATO. But then the other bit, obviously, is that NATO's member states also have to take a decision about whether they want to accept a country. Um, if you take countries like Sweden and Finland, it seems very clear that if they decided to join NATO, NATO would accept them. They have strong armed forces. They have very close military cooperation with NATO and NATO would almost certainly welcome Finland and Sweden. The Irish case is a bit difficult. The Irish defence forces are relatively weak. One of the basic questions which NATO would ask is how will you contribute to NATO? What contribution militarily will your country bring to NATO? And it's not clear that Ireland would have a good answer to that question. So even if Ireland wanted to join NATO, I think there is an open question about whether NATO would accept Ireland or perhaps more accurately, what would NATO's expectations of Ireland be? So NATO would expect Ireland to increase defence spending. NATO would expect Ireland to make some kind of contribution to the collective defence uh, of other NATO member states. And those questions might be quite challenging ones for the Irish government to answer. I want to take us back in time a little bit now to give the current situation a bit of context. In the 90s, when Poland and Hungary joined NATO, that was despite Russia's objections. But this was a very different Russia to the one we see now, right? That's right. I mean, this NATO enlargement or NATO expansion question has been a big question, obviously, in the context of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment goes right back to the early 1990s. For the Central East European countries, countries like Poland, Hungary, Romania, the Baltic states, they viewed themselves as artificially separated from Europe, of having had communism imposed on them by the Soviet Union. So they wanted to, as they put it, return to Europe, to fully integrate themselves with Europe, to become full members of the EU, 
but also to become full members of uh, NATO. So maybe one point to think about it is if you think about this NATO enlargement question, it's not actually been driven by NATO. It's been driven by the Central and Eastern European states who want to join NATO. The second thing to say is obviously Russia didn't like this. From Russia's perspective, uh, NATO was the Cold War uh, enemy. Russia still viewed NATO uh, as a threat and therefore was always opposed to NATO's uh, eastward enlargement. Um, but at that point, there were still elements of cooperation between uh, NATO and Russia. So NATO, uh, sorry, Russia was involved on the ground in the NATO peacekeeping operations in Bosnia and Kosovo. Institutions like the NATO-Russia Council were put in place to maintain uh, cooperation between uh, Russia and NATO. Uh, but over time, those things decayed uh, and relations have become more and more problematic, which ultimately brings us to uh, the current situation in Ukraine. And um, When Vladimir Putin took charge in the year 2000, what was his approach to NATO then? I think one can see ambiguity there. And I mentioned earlier 9-11. President Putin, after 9-11, declared a kind of solidarity with the West. So he argued that the West and Russia faced a common threat uh, in the face of uh, Islamic terrorism uh, and that this might provide a basis for unity between Russia and the West. And to a certain extent, that proved uh, to be the case. But I think President Putin's thinking, his mindset was always different from that of the West. President Putin thinks in terms of great powers, uh, imperialism, spheres of influence. And I think that he believed that it might be possible effectively to carve up Eastern Europe uh, and reach some kind of agreement with the West uh, on this issue. Whereas the Western perspective was that the Central East European countries, uh, including Ukraine, are independent countries and they have the right to determine their own destiny and their own fate. And again, that's one of the things which has brought us to the current situation in Ukraine. Something I want to ask you about is the 2008 NATO summit in Romania. That seems to be a standout moment in terms of President Putin's relationship with NATO. What happened at that summit? Exactly. So a number of things happened at that summit. Again, we can go back a couple of years earlier. In 2004, there had been the so-called colour revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia. So the Orange Revolution uh, in Ukraine, the Rose Revolution uh, in Georgia. These brought to power democratic pro-Western governments who wanted to bring their countries into the European Union uh, and into NATO. And this was the background then to this summit in Bucharest in Romania in April uh, of 2008. What happened at this summit was that there were really divisions between the NATO member states. So the US wanted to try and press ahead to try and move forward with possible Ukrainian membership of NATO. West European countries, in particular Germany and France, were wary of antagonising Russia. And so the compromise that came out of this was a statement that, in principle, uh, Ukraine and Georgia would become NATO members, but at some point in the future, and that point was unspecified. Uh, and that, of course, antagonised the Russians because on the one hand, it wasn't clear when Ukraine and Georgia might join NATO, but it seemed to indicate that they would ultimately join uh, NATO. The other thing we can say is that President Putin was actually at this summit. So alongside the meetings of NATO, there was also a meeting of this NATO-Russia uh, council at heads of state level. And at this meeting, uh, 
President Putin famously told NATO leaders that Ukraine wasn't a real country. So at this point, even in 2008, President Putin was signalling to the West that he didn't really believe uh, that Ukraine was a real country. So there's a debate, I think, about whether NATO enlargement is the real issue or whether the real issue is actually that Ukraine, and in particular President Putin, has been unwilling to accept the idea of an independent uh, Ukrainian state. And that decision at that summit in 2008, do you think that had a significant impact on, on Putin's thinking at the time? And I'm wondering as well, did that to a certain extent put targets on the backs of, of Georgia and Ukraine without any actual support or protection from NATO? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, some critics would argue that in a way, NATO's decision perhaps was the worst of all worlds because it was enough to antagonise uh, Russia, but it didn't extend NATO membership or the Article 5 security guarantee to Ukraine or Georgia. So it also left them uh, vulnerable. And here we are 15, 16 years later, uh, and we see uh, a somewhat similar situation where uh, Ukraine is not a NATO member. It's, it's clearly vulnerable to uh, Russia. And then the other thing you mentioned there, of course, was Georgia. Uh, shortly after the NATO uh, summit, Russia attacked uh, Georgia uh, and effectively seized two uh, provinces, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which were part of Georgian territory. Uh, and that was very much a signal in a way to former Soviet countries like Georgia and Ukraine, but also to the West at what might happen uh, if the West pressed ahead with plans for NATO enlargement. And Ukraine has particularly since 2013 been gradually moving closer to the West politically. It was even written into the constitution in 2019 that the country should become a member of NATO. When Putin started amassing troops on the border recently and considering what we've just discussed there, how much of that and how much of the situation happening now is likely down to concern about NATO? I'm, as I said, I'm not sure that NATO is the whole of the story. I think the real issue in some ways is the idea of Ukraine as an independent state and the idea of Ukraine moving towards the West. And one illustration of this, if we think back to the 2014 uh, Russian intervention in Ukraine, that was triggered not by NATO-related issues, but by EU-related issues. So at that point, the Ukrainian government was on the verge of signing an association agreement uh, with the European Union, which would have brought Ukraine much closer to the European Union, and Russia intervened because of that. So that suggests that the issue isn't simply NATO, it's also the EU. And as I suggested, I think more broadly, it's the very idea of an independent Western-leading Ukrainian state. The other thing I think we can argue is that democracy in Ukraine is in itself uh, a threat to President Putin and the authoritarian regime uh, in Moscow. If you think about Ukraine or Ukrainians as Russia's Slavic brothers, uh, if Ukraine be can become a successful Western-oriented democracy, then that sends a strong message to the Russian people that Russia one day could become uh, a successful Western-oriented democracy. So a viable democracy in Ukraine is also a threat to President Putin and the Russian uh, leadership, and that's part of what's going on uh, as well. So if this had happened in a country that is already in NATO, if Russia had you know, amassed troops on the border and, and sent them in, what steps would have been taken? Well, I think almost certainly we would have seen 
before any actual attack, a significant upping of uh, plans for the defence of Central Eastern European countries. And indeed, if you look at what's happened since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine started in the last couple of weeks, already seen NATO uh, putting more boots on the ground, uh, American troops, but also German, British, French troops on the ground in the Baltic states, in Poland, in Romania, uh, to try to deter Russia. So the strong hope, obviously, in NATO and in the West is that all of this would ever would deter Russia uh, from ever attacking, for instance, the Baltic states or Poland. If Russia were to attack a NATO country, we don't absolutely know what would happen. Would NATO live up to the Article 5 security guarantee? But I think at this point, most observers believe that NATO would live up to this Article 5 uh, security guarantee. And we would then be into a war between uh, Russia and NATO. But I think most of the Russian leadership understands this and understands that this would be an enormous risk for Russia. So the hope is that that makes this unlikely. But if President Putin is desperate enough, uh, for instance, if things continue to go badly for Russia and Ukraine, uh, Russia could escalate by trying to prompt a conflict with NATO uh, elsewhere. So there's certainly a dangerous situation uh, on the eastern borders of NATO now with Russia and with Ukraine. Do we have any sense of what that would look like, a war between Russia and NATO? We have some sense. Um, in the first instances, presumably it would involve Russian aircraft missiles and maybe then ground forces attacking targets in most likely the Baltic states, Poland uh, and uh, Romania. NATO forces would then engage those forces and we would see firing on the ground. The problem, of course, is the risk of escalation. If that happens, then NATO may try to strike targets in Russia in order to attack follow-on forces, to attack Russian air bases and so on. That could trigger escalation to Russia trying to target not just NATO forces in, let's say, uh, Poland uh, or the Baltic states, but potentially NATO forces uh, in Germany, Norway, even the United Kingdom and uh, so on. So you could easily see this kind of military escalation uh, dynamic. And of course, in the worst case, potentially that could escalate to a third world war involving the use of uh, nuclear weapons. So, I mean, there are frightening scenarios out there. The hope is, and I think it's still a sensible hope and a reasonable one, is that Russia really won't test NATO. It's one thing for Russia to attack uh, Ukraine it would be a radically different thing for Russia to attack one of the NATO members, the Baltic states, Poland, uh, and so on. So hopefully that's unlikely. We were talking earlier about how NATO's remit evolved over time. So what's the ultimate aim in terms of membership? Are there aspirations to significantly expand beyond the current makeup? And do you think what's happening in Ukraine at the moment will change what the plans would have been? Does NATO want to bulk up more now? I don't think it's the case that NATO wants to bulk up. And again, to go back to one of my earlier points, it's always really been the case of other countries seeking NATO membership, not NATO having plans to expand uh, per se. Um, that being said, I think, you know, there are certainly those within NATO countries who, for instance, would welcome uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO. So, for example, if you think about defending the Baltic states, they're difficult to defend. They'll be somewhat easier to defend if you have Finland and Sweden uh, fully inside uh, NATO. So it's certainly possible that Finland and Sweden may be welcomed into NATO within the next few years. But in the end, that will be a decision of the 
publics and the governments of those countries, not a decision uh, of NATO. The other big question, of course, is still the Ukraine uh, question. You know, right now, uh, Ukrainian membership of NATO uh, is clearly not practicable or uh, sensible. Depending how this conflict plays out, though, one could see scenarios where uh, Ukraine joins NATO within the next few years. One of the alternatives, and the Russians have sometimes argued this, is that a country like Ukraine would be better off becoming neutral. That might be one of the compromises which could ultimately bring an end to uh, the fighting uh, in Ukraine. So in terms of NATO enlargement, you know, there's an awful lot of uncertainty there, particular, particularly around uh, the future of Ukraine. Maybe the other footnote we can add to this is, of course, that relates to the European Union as well. Up until very recently, the EU has been reluctant to consider Ukraine as a member. Uh, but now we see European leaders talking about the idea that Ukraine uh, will join the European Union, even if it's unclear exactly when and how that might realistically be possible. And in Sweden and Finland, which you, you mentioned there, uh, they could be next. Is there an appetite in, in those countries to join? There has been a shift in the last few weeks, particularly in Finland. So um, until recently, there have been strong voices arguing for NATO membership. But the overall uh, balance of public opinion in both countries has been to retain uh, their long-standing status of neutrality. That's beginning to shift now. So some opinion polls suggest, particularly in Finland, there seems to be a shift in public opinion towards the possibility of uh, NATO uh, membership. And if the opinion in Finland shifts, then that could also change public opinion in uh, Sweden uh, as well. I guess right now there's so much going on that probably in the very short term, this is not a decision that anyone wants to consider. But in the next few years, uh, it's quite likely we'll see renewed debate uh, on this issue. Uh, and again, then there would be a question about, you know, to what extent might that impact thinking here in Ireland and public opinion here uh, in Ireland? Although I think, as I've suggested, my view is that uh, support for neutrality here in Ireland is very deeply embedded. So probably NATO membership is unlikely, but I guess uh, never say never. And is, is this latest crisis in Ukraine likely to make NATO reconsider admitting more countries or maybe delay any discussions on that? Because presumably there will be tensions around adding more countries, particularly those close to Russia, to NATO. Well, exactly. And I mean, you, you've seen that, that Russia has made ominous statements, you know, statements along the line that, you know, it would not be wise for Finland or Sweden to consider joining NATO, that if they do that, uh, Russia has military technical options that it could take uh, to address that kind of issue. Um, so I think NATO will be cautious around this issue. But at the same time, I think NATO member states and also the governments in particular in uh, Finland and Sweden would say this is ultimately our decision. It's not Russia's decision. Russia doesn't have uh, a veto. And on that question of uh, Finland and Sweden, I think that that might be more bluster than real talk from Russia. So I think if Finland and Sweden were to decide uh, to join NATO, then they would be able to do so. Uh, and Russia's reaction would probably be limited. Well, there's certainly lots to consider as the situation evolves. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on to talk it all through with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Andrew for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan and my co-host Grania Nier. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. 
You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.